Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Horror Vanguard Live at the University of Chicago. Uh, we are so excited to have you here today. I'm Laura Culinary. I'm here just to thank quickly our co-sponsors here at UChicago who helped us put this event on. Thank you to the University of Chicago Department of Cinema and Media Studies, the Department of English, the Graduate Council, the Carla Scherer Center for the Study of American Culture, the Center for the Study of Race, Politics and Culture, the Chicago Center for Contemporary Theory, the 20th and 21st Century Workshop, and the Mass Culture Workshop. I also want to thank Paul Scanty for the amazing posters and flyers that helped advertise this event. You can get signed versions of those posters after the show. And I also wanted to thank Stephanie Monahan and Modest Merch in Chicago for these really amazing Stripe Was Right t-shirts. Uh, those can also be purchased after the show and I believe in a special store uh, after this show will be published online. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Uh, introducing live in the flesh for the first time ever together on the same continent uh john greenaway the lit crit guy and ash darrow horror vanguard live take it away <laughs> thank you thank you so so much thank you laura thank you to to everyone who has uh been able to show up and show out for the film screenings the talks uh, this is this is the final event that we get to do this is where we get to cut loose a little bit um and um, this is my first time in Chicago. It's an incredible city. Super excited to be here. Um, I don't know how many people have listened to the show before, but we normally record the show uh, in the evening uh, UK time. And around that time of day, after you know a long, long work day, you want to you want to kind of like relax and perhaps have uh, a, a, an adult beverage uh, whilst you podcast. Um, we have we have done this. Uh, I don't know. Did anyone listen to our episode on ICP? Uh, this is where this is where I was introduced to a very particular American beverage called Fago, and it permanently altered his DNA, allowing him to enter the country for the first time. Yeah, they, 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 those 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 scanners that TSA make you walk through uh, to detect Fago particles uh, is how I was able to get into the country. Um, I am I am just super excited to be in Chicago, particularly because. Uh, Chicago is known for its own uh, unique beverage. Our, our food culture here is uh, second to none, one would say. Our beverages also grand. Uh, and, and so uh, I can't think of a better way to kind of start the show than uh, being introduced to a Chicago institution. We have Jepson's Malort, a beverage made out of pain, <laughs> alcohol, and I've heard rumors of what the flavoring in this is, but I... <laughs> <laughs> I know there's one person here who actually likes Jepson's Malort, our wonderful graphic designer, Paul. And it's, uh, your, your influence on my life has only been for the better, I want to say. All right, uh, uh, to harrowing the soul, to preparing for death, and to rendering us capable of turning to good. Cheers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
that is that is a, that is an aggressive drink. That, that, that is an extremely aggressive drink. You know, I think I think Paul, just my raw exposure to you, the most Chicago person I've ever met. I, I mean, this tastes like spring water to me now. <laughs> I feel I feel healed somehow. Uh, I, I feel like I've taken quite serious psychic damage. Uh, we are gonna we are gonna have a really good time. Um, oh, allegedly. Allegedly, you just you did just drink all of that. <laughs> we will we'll see how the next hour or so goes. Um, <laughs> This is also my first time at the University of Chicago. Um, uh, Horror Vanguard, of course, brought here by the dark, cursed energy that radiates from the hell mouth that the <laughs> School of Business and Economics was built on top of. So I can, I can figure no better way to sort of establish the mood, as it were, than to play a very quick game of most evil alumni of the University of Chicago. <laughs> With uh, me, your host, and today's player, Ash Darrow, uh, I will give you two choices of uh, famed uh, uh, alumni of this august right, higher right. education institute. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, we're we're going to start strong. We're going to start strong. Uh, known, uh, according to this, known as a political scientist, diplomat, politician, economist, banker, and in my opinion, war criminal who should be in jail, Paul <laughs> Wolfowitz. Round of applause, please. Friend of the show, Paul Wolfowitz. Strong contender. Strong contender for uh, 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 extremely evil alumni. Um, uh, you, you have to make the call here, Ash. Okay, okay. Uh, going up against Wolfowitz. Uh, honestly, probably one one of the goats, one of like the all-time Hall of Famers. Is he goaded with the sauce, John? <laughs> we are, of course, talking about uh, the man, the myth, the legend... David Rockefeller. <laughs> Honestly, I, I think, and I think this one, this one is personal because of Paul Wolfowitz's impact on media. But I, I have, I have to go with the Wolf. Oh, Wolfowitz! That's, that's takes my pick. In a, in a that's rare my pick. Upset, uh, a very strong case could be made. Uh, unfortunately, of course, the correct answer, as it always has been, uh, Milton Friedman. Everybody, <laughs> most, most evil University of Chicago alumna. Never going to be touched. <laughs> However, there are good people at the University of Chicago. This might shock you if you're not from the University of Chicago, but not everyone here has had their soul corrupted by dark magic yet. Uh, and we'd like to thank a few of those good organizations and people, including the Teamsters, who represent the library workers, SEIU, which works the facilities, security, and other support staff, Faculty Forward for the adjuncts, Graduate Students United, whose hardship fundraiser will be in the show notes for today's episode. Yeah, if you are listening to the show after the fact, please do check out the link <laughs> and support the Graduate Students Hardship Organizing Fund. For a brief moment, I thought I forgot that this was live and it would be released later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also there's the uh, AAUP chapter and the National Nurses United, as well as the uh, Starbucks workers at the Starbucks on 55th who are currently unionizing. So we just wanted to round of applause for all of the organized labor here. But that's uh, our, that's our version of the band's like, how's it going, Cincinnati? <laughs> Play Freebird. <laughs> uh, we are here to talk about uh, the film that we were lucky enough to screen here just a couple of days ago. We are here to talk about, uh, uh, honestly, a great 90s B-movie creature feature, uh, The Relic. Um, now, if you've listened to the show for any time at all, you'll know that we... Um, 
we always want to make sure that people who maybe have not seen the film uh, have a chance to kind of follow along with what the film is actually uh, actually about. You know, it's very important. Um, and uh, maybe if you were here for the screening, this will refresh your memory. Or if um, you couldn't make it, this will be a kind of way into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and as usual, um, I'm I'm always I'm always so excited for this bit of the show because this is the bit of the show where I have no idea what's about to happen. Um, but my dear friend Ash, co-ghost, uh, the relic from 1997. What's it about? I wish I knew. A museum is not just a building with a collection of objects, but a generator for memory, relationships to histories, and a machine designed to generate a consensus about our reality. Cinema functions much in the same way as a museum. Each display, every gallery. At times we rely on these uh, stories of memory to supplement our own memories and our own limitations. Thus does film, like museums, become a shared store of memory by way of cultural infrastructure. These stories can feel distant. They are taken out of our hands by systemic forces beyond the control of any one person. However, collective being and presence is required to tell any tale. Being together in any magnitude has the power to reshape how we share the story of our world. Each act, just like each person, finds completion through the being complete together. I can never watch the relic again, at least not in the same way I saw it before the Horror Vanguard live show. It's no longer this weird film set in the Field Museum, but forevermore will intersect with my memories of this event. I can't see the relic without seeing each and every one of your faces now in, in the maw of some plasticine monster. Everything I know about the relic, in some way, will be changed by the encounter we've shared in this event. In this way, like so many others, film is more than fantasy. It's an attempt at understanding moments, events, and human trajectories over time. Film resolves the waking mind like cultural sleep. Horror arises in cinema as nightmares bubble to the surface in a troubled mind. Nightmares are often moralized as being negative, but they are neither good or bad. Nightmares are merely sites of unresolved potential. There are, new there are new cinematic historiographies. The events depicted in the relic are real, but not literal. They are superstitions and hyperstitions expressed in the only genre that can contain them, horror and the gothic. Monstrosities are literalized, transliterated, and depicted, but they are nevertheless present. A humanoid lizard lion won't snack on your hypothalamus gland, but rampaging fears over who, who counts as human just might. Cathaga is an amalgam, a creature part human, part animal, part plant. Cathaga is an assemblage of the vague and ill-defined human fears that shape our actions. Tell me what you see stalking the dark corners of your mind, and I will tell you who you are. I would ask you to join us, but haven't parts of us always been here? The relic. <laughs> 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 uh honestly always genuinely always my favorite part of the show is getting it's getting to listen to ash do these because i never Aww. i never read them in advance i never get to see them in advance so um uh let us let us then do this collectively and and engage in some film criticism um and to start with as we always do uh we begin with the formalism zone 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 
and oh god, I can I can still taste the malort. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, I forgot to. That was that's permanent. Ah, uh, it's like it's like a coat. Ah, uh, it's fine. It's fine. It's a it's, it's it's your tongue now. It's not the malort. <laughs> this is this is the ambient flavor of your saliva from this day forward. Uh, well, let, let, let's let's. So so what what is a museum, John? Uh, a museum is uh, a lament configuration for imperialism and extractive capitalism. All right. Well, thank you for coming to the Horror Vanguard Live Show discussion of the relic. Uh, t-shirts will be for sale. Uh, I have to. I have to be honest. If we're going to talk, if we are going to talk seriously about um, about uh, questions of like epistemological closure and the ways in which um, culture is often forcibly stripped uh, out of its uh, context by imperialist and colonialist powers, probably falls to the British person in the room to take the lead on this. <laughs> Um, I mean, so noble. Yeah, we all know where you learned it from. You le- it's, like, it's like that. It's like the thanks, it's, Dad. Yeah, I learned it from you. Okay. Uh, but we should probably talk about uh, Hans Sloan. So Hans Sloan, uh, the the least British name. The, the least British name. He was uh, he was actually an Irish uh, natural scientist. Also, Ooh. the inventor of drinking chocolate. Um, which I think kind of confers upon him perhaps some good on the great karmic ledger of existence. <laughs> uh, but Sloan was also uh, the collector and acquirer of a collection of about 70,000 objects, uh, l- many of them from British colonies, which went on to form the basis of what is now the British Museum. Um, and I, th- I think to look at a museum, to look at any kind of institution is to be reminded that acquisitions... That very kind of neutral term that, you know, universities love to use, museums love to use. Acquisitions were, if you read the, if you read the Wikipedia page for the British Museum, so much of it is like, at the Battle of Cairo, and you go, sorry, what was that? What? <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's about the ways in, which, ways in which this cultural capital is built up alongside the capital of empire, mm-hmm. um, which is why, obviously, we can talk about the kind of public good of museums and their kind of civic responsibility but it would be a mistake to kind of erase that right Mm. so you may be british which is which is bad enough in the context of of museums (laughs) i i however for a decade worked in museums doing everything from events to curatorial work so so i was a uh, frontline soldier in the war of ethnocide that museums perpetrate so john john and i have a cross to bear with this episode uh, th- things about the relic, uh, after working long enough in a museum, you eventually go insane when you see museums in movies and television because the depiction is just like, it- it's just like any industry. It's just like being a mechanic and seeing mechanics on TV. Like, like all of the context is shredded and you lose your mind. H- however, the relic is actually like one-to-one accurate. Uh, the the only good person accidentally dies immediately and that's the guy trying to get high at night when no one's around. Um, the, the, the entire apparatus of the museum is designed to facilitate the egos of some local ultra-rich donors through the Galenite. The Galenite, which, which disrupts and destroys all these precious artifacts and acquisitions that the museum... The, the function of the Galenite is to wax the egos of these people and has... It, it, I think it, in a more serious tone, though, it reflects the kind of core problem about the museum, right? Because you're supposed to go to a museum by its own logic to get educated about the world, right? You go to the museum, you go to the Africa exhibit to learn something about 
tribes, but what really you're getting packaged is a set of acceptable belief systems for this ultra-rich donor class. So the, the function of the museum then, it, it's not just this surface level cultural appropriation and theft that's going on, but it's kind of this deeper mechanical greasing of these systems. Yeah, so I, this is like we talk about the museum as an archive, and uh, to call something an archive is also to call it an, an authority, right? It's an inscription of authority. There's a, there is a specific uh, epistemology mm -hmm. uh, of like what can you know is dependent upon how the uh, how the museum organizes the space that it has to work with, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the choices of what is put on public display and the yeah. stuff that is left on shelving units or in archives it is a way of constructing a particular kind of discourse a particular kind yeah. of narrative about them well i think uh why don't, why don't we uh wrap up our, our initial uh exploration of the formalism zone uh and uh oh, one, one last thing the lighting in this movie is terrible <laughs> or it's either terrible or brilliant it's one of those things where like you we, we talked about this in the q a session briefly but like the movie starts with like normal lighting that's good and then like the second act they take away most of the lighting and the third act it's all like fire and flashlights and i still can't figure out if that is like a phenomenally brilliant decision to hide the monster and and do all this clever horror build tension or if that is just like the most like oh wouldn't it be sick if all the lighting was diegetic Ooh. wouldn't it be cool if you couldn't see the characters ever again and we're, we're not we're not sure where the characters are in relation to one another that yeah great gonna really really drag the audience into the picture you know this idea of like oh they just the lighting crew just quit <laughs> like, like they just got it's like ideal no let's just we're just no we're done <laughs> but do you so our discussion do you want to discuss start our discussion with the hero of today's episode freddie ford uh, I think we should. I think we. I think we absolutely should talk about Freddy, the the security guard who decides to uh, practice some time theft and get a little high whilst he's at work uh, at, for the, for the heinous crime of which uh, he is uh, immediately decapitated and has his hypothalamus uh, eaten by a giant lizard monster. Um, it, do not smoke the marijuana, everyone. <laughs> Cannabis will get you taken down by a lizard beast. <laughs> Well, I think what I think is really important about, about this, though, is that it, it the relic weirdly has Reaganite politics. Like this, this is very Ronald Reagan presents a night at the museum because you have you have Freddie Ford, who, who's this black American security guard. Right. And like if you've ever worked as a security guard or worked with teams that have been security guards, like th there's a lot of like myths that like, oh, security guards are, like retired cops or people who got kicked out of the Marines or whatever. Most security guards are like schlubby guys in their mid 40s who just don't want to work another job and if you're a security guard at a museum like the most hardcore thing you're going to ever have to do is tell someone to buy a ticket you know like it is not a security level job and and this, this vision of freddie ford just like clocking in and trying to pass the time at a job he's underpaid at which may or may not have union representation just getting high and like one of those jobs where like you could just be blitzed <laughs> as a museum security guard and there will be no negative consequences of your actions uh, I, uh, honestly, I think a good point of comparison here is um, uh, is our um, Chicago uh, police officer, uh, Lieutenant... Uh, what was his name? Uh, Lieutenant uh, Calzone. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 detective... L uh, Lieutenant DiGiorno's Pizza. <laughs> yeah, uh, Lieutenant uh, DiGiorno's Pizza, um, who, is, who is so much of a stereotype of a Chicago cop 
Uh, he hasn't he hasn't gotten divorced and lost custody of his kids. He's lost custody of his dog, um, which, to be honest, given the record of police officers and shooting dogs, I think it's probably worked out it's, for the best. It's for the best. The dog is safe now. Uh, yeah. But uh, Lieutenant uh, Gabagool... Lieutenant Lou Malnati, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lieutenant uh, Tony Soprano wannabe. Um, Lieutenant Galdolf, uh, <laughs> James Gandolfini <laughs> uh, is, is this kind of walking stereotype. And the, the representation of police... In this film, it's a law of the horror vanguard universe that uh, police are, are useless. Uh, the police do not keep you safe. Uh, police do not protect you. Police do not uh, manage to achieve anything positive in any horror movie. Um, but like tonally, the police in this are, are deeply weird. So, so at the start of the movie, we've got two kids who get like who sneak into the museum and get locked in at night, and they wander around and like so like there's like this really cute there's like a cute kids movie inside about this inside this movie about kids who get locked in a museum and oh there's a spooky it's a goosebumps story right, <laughs> um but like so so fucking detective detective D'Angelo. Uh, <laughs> All he does in the movie is ask the question, ask questions that would only be appropriate coming from like two fifth grade boys, like. <laughs> You study evolution? What does that mean? Genetics? What are those? And uh, it, it feels like they collapse to the characters, which is weirdly appropriate to present a cop as being infantilized. It's it's amazing way uh, you know meets the other main character. Uh, it's a doctor. It's a woman. What? No. Doctor lady. A, 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 it's it's a lady doctor. The ev evolutionary psychologist. Uh, no, evolutionary biologist. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a University of Chicago discipline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I study why sigma males are dominant. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and you know, he, his monocle pops off at the idea that uh, uh, a woman could have a PhD and be working in this in this position. So it's like this weirdly infantilized uh, kind of embodiment of '90s masculinity, yeah, yeah, uh, the, played the, by Tom Sizemore of all people. The, the movie has this weird form of like. It, it, there are so many things that happen in this movie that feel like they're out of like a '50s film. You know, like, like, like that, 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 like, I'm here looking for Dr. Green. Are you Mrs. Dr. Green? <laughs> like, like, that, that is, like, straight out of, like, them or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, and of course, like, the, these same kind of, like, you know, like, like, feminist and gender tensions exist in the 90s and exist today. But the way this movie plays them just feels so, like, it in and of itself is a thing that you would see in a museum. This weirdly, like, frozen in amber piece of cultural attitude. It's exactly the same as the two cops who are trying out, like, a, a pseudo-Jerry Seinfeld bit about lattes. <laughs> What's the deal with lattes? <laughs> what is the deal with airline food? Uh, and it's like, these are two characters that are supposed to be looking for a murderer. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, are you doing that five minute open spot at the comedy cell? Let's just riff. Let's mm -hmm. just riff and see where it goes. Yeah. Which again, I think it highlights like the kind of like, this happens in a lot of like your 50s monster movies where you wind up having like some embodiment of like a colonialist military apparatus, right? You have like a United States military captain trying to defeat the giant radioactive praying, praying mantis or you have like a cop or something but then there's always the scientist who actually does all the work and figures out everything and saves the day and does all the solving and then it, it just has to get loaded into a fighter jet at the end because that's like it's just like mit in a nutshell it's the function of mm -hmm. engineering yep you know you, you your scientist might be brilliant but uh it'll be the police department that's using the boston dynamics robots they invented <laughs> 
you know it's uh, there's always this relationship in this film and this film models it kind of expertly between uh discourses of knowledge and discourses of like the law mm-hmm. uh i i can't help but feel uh anyone who's even slightly interested in michel foucault would have a great time reading this movie uh and just going yep yeah yep that documentary that's what this is <laughs> so, all right so a question a yes question for you far uh, away uh Given what this film is about, uh, and particularly given how this film opens with its opening sequence in Brazil, let's we we've been talking a little bit about kind of colonialism and the ways in which uh, the discourses of knowledge of the museum depend upon the violence of empire. Um, but how how do we read this film? How do we read the the uh, depictions of colonialism in this? this is this a kind of anti-colonial? Uh, monster movie or or is this simply a kind of restaging and reinscription of colonialist uh discourses of the other the monstrous other that's arrived in the center of uh you know white capitalist modernity yeah so i think that this is a really fun question um but so some one of the things that we've been talking about through through the course of this three-day live show event um, is that horror and the gothic are inherently and necessarily ambiguous right they never resolve themselves on being one thing or the other because they emerge from the tension itself right the relic just like every gothic or horror text is a being made of tension it doesn't want to be any one thing because it is the wound it's trying to express and so in the relic you can see all of these conflicting uh kind of formations of colonialism right because you the opening of this movie is the most colonialist thing ever it's like it's like a white anthropologist taking pictures of of a tribal dance, and then he gets he gets spooked by someone in an animal mask, and like it, it is it is like ripped from the pages of like a men's action serial from the thirties, mm-hmm. you know. And then he 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 though winds up becoming the monster, you know. It's it's the revenge of the um, colonized against the colonizer using their sciences and technologies. The relic is effectively about a bioweapon being unleashed in the field museum by an indigenous tribe, right? And so, like, like that, that viable reading is there, but then that is also further troubled by, like, what, what saves the day? It's white science, mm-hmm. right? Like, the thing that ultimately saves the day is a bunch of white people and cops get together, and they sit down, and they do engineering, and then they ultimately conquer this insidious threat from the colonies. And so the film is emerging at all points in this conversation. And I think rather than settling on is the relic colonialist or anti-colonialist, I I think it's more useful to use the relic as a tool to explore every side of this conversation. To to be able to map out how colonialism appears in horror and how we can kind of push through the space. Well, like this kind of brings up a really important point, I think, and maybe something that you can kind of say more about, which is like, the ways in which that is also tied into the kind of production of the museum as this space of education. Because I think that's intimately connected into how this film um, thinks about the role and function of science and knowledge more mm-hmm. generally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, like if you look at the evolutionary history of the museum as a thing in and of itself, right? Early museums start off with like, you would go to a museum and you would see a taxidermied specimen in a glass case with maybe a little name tag with its Latin name. Right. And now when you go to a museum, you'll see like a a few paragraphs about something. But even that is still it's still the same form. Right. We're still curating information and deciding what we depict and how we depict it. Right. Like most contemporary natural history museums still readily and actively use racial slurs. 
and and that is a reflect and like you'll go to a museum and there'll be like a racial slur written on the wall and then you'll ask about it and they'll be like oh well we don't have the funds to change the signage and that reflects science at the time which is an important historical document by the way please fill out the survey on our brand new ipads to let us know about marketing and demographic information so so there are again curatorial decisions being made about what is worth financial investment which communities education is being prioritized right and then again like you know we we just we just got to play worst university of chicago graduates (laughs) Uh, because this school is uniquely uniquely poised for the generation of human demons <laughs> instantly turned into Alex Jones for a second there. The demons. Um, it's the Malort kicking. Yeah, it's the, 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 the Malort will do that. Um, but I think that this this is something that that goes on inside of the relic as well, right? Like we we see like the museum is expressly coded as the site of groundbreaking cultural and scientific research. They're pioneering genetics and anthropology, and they're on the cutting edge. And like every museum is essentially just six flags for nerds, you know, like some museums now even have like the, the museum I worked at for a about three years had amusement rides just in the lobby and not like not like an amusement ride where it's like a ride ride through Africa, sea animal, but like a little rocket ship thing that you would just ride on like. It's it's this collapsing space between like, oh, no, we're an edu- we're an educational body, but like. Please, please buy all of our junk and buy into colonialism while playing our fun games. Yeah, because we have to use this as a way of extracting money from the the, the millionaires and billionaires who want to furnish their their, their own good conscience. <laughs> you know, the the field field museum superstition exhibition brought to you by the Sackler family. <laughs> you know, the field museum's uh, uh, exploits in in and showing the wonders of the of the of Amazonas brought to you by British Petroleum and Shell. Uh, but this is what the corporations do anyway. It's a way of kind mm-hmm. of uh, a greenwashing is is a, is still a thing, and it's taken a long time to get um, ostensibly you know progressive educational institutions like museums and galleries to actually stop dealing with people like the Sacklers and stop allowing uh, their money to be the kind of price of their the laundering their 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 the, the guilt for their crimes against you know millions upon millions of people. Complicated. Complicated. Yeah. So, so this is this is only this is tangentially related, but one of the last exhibits that I oversaw was a Marvel Cinematic Universe exhibit in a natural history museum, and and there was like there was like an Iron Man. That, I hate it. I hate for, it for the so record, much. for the record, everybody who went to the museum and we were encouraged to talk about it this way is like, oh, like that's the Iron Man from the movies, but it was just some like junky plastic model. It wasn't like a screen used costume or anything. But there'd be like an Iron Man next to an exhibit about like, oh, contemporary technology that makes a real Iron Man. And it was the whole thing was just laundering military industrial complex talking points. <laughs> it's like, you know, wouldn't it be really cool if we had an Iron Man and you know who's working on an Iron Man right now? The Defense Department. <laughs> if you kids want to be a superhero, Northrop Grumman is looking for new super agents. <laughs> Oh, fan of Shield? Let me tell you about <laughs> DARPA. Yeah, let me tell you about the real Shield, the CIA. Um, I think I think we should also talk um about maybe maybe an underappreciated aspect of this film, mm-hmm. uh, which is its blatant hatred towards the discipline of anthropology. Oh yeah, let's. Uh, anthropologists uh, just taking huge L's throughout this film. Uh, the film that just goes. 
What what an absolutely idiotic field. They 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 don't do anything. They're completely useless. And frankly, anthropologists deserve to be turned into gigantic brain-eating lizard monsters. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm so the film kind of sets up this 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 tension between the anthropologists that we see at the beginning of the film uh, and our um, evolutionary uh, professor of eugenics uh, and <laughs> and biology um, who believes in science, capital S science. They are a member of the I fucking love science Facebook group. Um, uh, and the anthropologist is seen as this superstitious, strange outsider who doesn't adhere to kind of discourses of like, uh, rationality because the anthropologist has an interest in he's he's expressly framed not as an anthropologist studying superstition but as just a guy who is superstitious yeah just a weird guy <laughs> just a weird little guy in the jungle somewhere that we all hate and we don't miss uh, that's but but this raises the kind of big question of of the film right this is what is the relationship between um kind of superstition between between magic and science what does it mean to be scientific uh is it simply this uh kind of straightforward positivist model of like what can be quantified what can be put into a database that we can later sell off to raytheon and the chicago police department um you know or is it possible to think of the world in broader terms than just the narrow confines of like strict rationalist positivism um because what the result of that positivism is, is our final, is the final scene of the film, which is where we decide to use, use capital S science uh, to basically demolish an entire building and do <laughs> uh, is truly spectacular murder. So like, I, I don't know, what do you think? What do you think about this? What do you think about the relationship here between kind of the, the the Reddit science moment and and the anthropologist. So what, what I really like about this conflict is that you have, uh, so Dr. Green is an evolutionary sci scientist who's making a computer program that can read a DNA sample and tell you not only what species it comes from, but if it's a person, what person, what individual human it came from. She She's effectively making like, like the, what would the, C, the CIA's dream version of 23andMe. Right. Like, like that's the thing that she makes. It, and it's, it is so chilling in the movie to kind of like see, see that technology because to technology is, and this is something I, I like ranting about, but technology is agential, right? Like tech, a, a piece of technology has a will, you know, it, that has things that it wants to do based on the shape of it. You know, like a hammer is the example I always go to, right? Like if, if you have a hammer in hand, you have a finite set of options that you can take and move forward to use that hammer with. And the same is true for all technologies. Communicatory technologies like Twitter are great examples of this. You know, like the Twitter algorithm encourages a kind of uh, violence. You know, if you, if you tweet something violent and hostile, you're going to get hundreds of times the engagements if you tweet something kind of chill and fun. And the, the movie repackages that kind of technological violence and like... Because we, we can all think right now, like, if, if there was a machine that could scan any sample of DNA and immediately tell you who it came from, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be used to, like, solve diseases and find murderers. It would be used to terrorize the communities that are getting terrorized now anyway. It would be used to create new categories of biological essentialism, right? Like, uh, and this is contrasted in the film with kind of a more humanities approach, right? Anthropology. 
which in the movie is is people who take pictures, people who get eaten, and a guy who is just a weasel who's afraid of everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this film really hates anthropologists. Well, I think it hates humanity. This is this is this is like a stem lord film. It really hates the humanities in general. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But what, what what ultimately though, like what what winds up saving the day though are like the the, the kind of like technological apparatus that emerge from the humanities, right? It, it is Doctor Green reabsorbing superstition that winds up saving her, right? It's it's this magic bullet that she gets, like oh, does that save her? Does that lead her to the maceration tank where she hides from the giant lizard, lion, dinosaur, former anthropologist man? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I I don't know. I think this is a good way into talking about. Um Let's let's talk about the the creature in this feature. Let us talk about our uh, our former anthropologist. Um, and like, what's super interesting about this is the way that there's a lot of like uh, biological panic mm-hmm. running through this film. Right, uh, a lot of it is uh, I've I've said this previously over the days we've been here, but like a really great example is the is the. Uh, kind of like Benny Hill comedy moment where like rich people get trapped indoors and get like crushed in the street <laughs> because they're trying to flee from this monster. Because like the one panic that, you know, the one thing, the one problem that can't be solved by money uh, is the risk of death. You know, death is the, is the, is the, so like money is this kind of way of warding off the panic of dying. And then suddenly when this monster is this kind of interstitial subject, there's a lot of this kind of genetic panic of like, well, what, the, the the whole back half of the film is like what is this creature how do we tax how do we put it into our scientific taxonomy how do we make this into something which kind of fits our our um schemes of knowledge that we already have right so th- th- there's a couple of things that i think are worth talking about here i think the old how do you think this fits in with like the older tradition of like the gothic monster right mm. the the, am- the ambiguous thing so I, I think this works really well with like what I see as kind of like the ready-made analogy for this. And this is like a, a new riff on Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. It's it's this amalgam being that is formed from the tensions of other beings. And, and in Frankenstein, depending on like, uh, depending on which depiction, of course, there's a lot of Frankensteins out there. But you have, you have a creature that is made from disparate bodies, right? It is in and of itself a union of life. And, and what we see in Kathoga is a very similar thing, but it's also like, to, again, in the you know kind of popular Gothic context, there's also a lot of Dracula going on here, mm-hmm. right? Like Dracula c- comes out at, at a time in kind of our history where we're like really rounding the corner and figuring out like diseases and the blood. What does the blood do? Is it good for you? Should you have less of it? Dracula's right around the corner of these conversations. And as kind of like the the positivistic science right that we accept is this storehouse of unambiguous true information marches forward and acquires new details and new tidbits right those are always used in the most horrible ways possible you know like as we start to figure out like genetics and putting that together we get things like blood quantum and one drop rules and things like that that find new ways to reinstantiate racism right you get phrenology that's attempting to use like this physiological study of the skull to find out who's a bank robber mm-hmm. and then like a weird a really weird thing that i did not expect watching the relic now is like the, the so you become a, a kathoga by eating a fungus that's also a virus that infects a plant that also has reptile dna in it but but the thing the word they keep saying over and over again is hormones 
you know, you, you eat the hormones and you become monstrous. And in this, I think in our contemporary context, right? Like we're, we're in a moment where like in states all across the country and in a certain unnamed island that comes to mind for reasons unknown, uh, you know, like, like being trans, which is inherently woven into these hormonal discourses is, is becoming horrifyingly criminalized. Mm -hmm. And in, in a way like this, this movie is kind of like pointing out like this, this isn't a modern phenomenon. This is the thing that's been going on. There's always these conversations about is your blood bad? Are you from good blood? You know, like what's inside of you? What's making you monstrous in this kind of hegemonic context? And this even works intra the film because I think it's the, the Zanzari, the, the name of the tribe is whatever Spanish is for mosquito is, which is a really weird decision to make from the producers of the show. I have no idea why they wrote that. Um, but like even, even in the context of that, right? Like they unleash Cthulhu or Cthulhu. That's so Lovecrafty in that name. I keep trying to turn it into Cthulhu. Um, but, but, but they unleash it as like this retaliatory effort, right? So you see the same kind of like the, the, this fear about like where your blood comes from, where your hormones come from, where your genetics come from it is explicitly woven into like, are you a monster or not? Yeah. Well, and, and this is like the limit of that kind of rationalist positivism, right? The mm -hmm. whole point of the taxonomy is to secure the boundaries between you and everything which is not you right and if those boundaries are kind of questionable uh and no longer universal that destabilizes the category of not just the other but the category of you mm -hmm. right so so the this genetic uh like eugenicist panic is about if this exists what does that make us you know it makes us uh we, we are we are chimeras we mm -hmm. are we are these things which are kind of pieced together out of uh disparate elements that are uh kind of on their own something that we'd be repulsed by and i think the the this the, this hormonal panic gives this film it w makes it so weirdly contemporary for something that is also so determinedly 1990s yeah but it is true that like this this concern about the destabilization of taxonomy is is one that is very violently policed mm -hmm. uh, quite literally you know it's it's like something judith butler talks about right there's a famous big think interview where butler talks about like the disciplinary mechanisms of, mm -hmm. of gender you know uh uh young boys told they can't act a certain way young girls told they can't act a certain way that's often medicalized mm -hmm. uh it, you know it's often it's often enforced by social stigma and so like it's it's all still there. This this fear of the monster is really the fear of our own instability. The fact that if if that boundary, if the self is no longer distinct, you know, like you have to become a different kind of subject, uh, which is which is potentially kind of incredible, right? There's, what happens to to this anthropologist is sort of amazing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's 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 awful, it's horrific, it's monstrous, but it's a kind of becoming that like it's also like. Is is he is he still human, and kind of like, kind of, yeah, and so this raises all these kind of like really interesting and important questions of well, well, what does that make? What does it mean to be human in the first place? What really? And the whole point about monsters is monsters are not the separate thing over there, right? Monsters are a revelation of something, but the revelation is about you. Monsters are us, right? That's 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 who we are. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things about this this film that's really interesting for me is that monstrosity isn't a state. It's not a taxonomy. You don't become a monster by ingesting the virus fungus hormone leaf. 
you you become a monster by your social relationship to people who are not monsters right a monster is you know just like dating or just like any other social relationship right it's it's not an intrinsic change in your being it's a change in your relationship to other beings by which you define yourself mm. and like kathoga is a great example like kathoga exists in the field museum as a relationship to the same colonialist forces that built the field museum mm-hmm. right like with, without those relationships like it's easy to imagine a world where either this this guy never gets turned into a kathoga or like the existence of a kathoga is is like reinserted into some context in which it is no longer monstrous yeah and like to to contain the monstrous to to literally to literally secure the entire kind of cognitive foundation that the fields museum rests upon dr green almost burns down the compl- the entire building like it, it's it's such a great literalization of, of the entire process that we've been talking about right <laughs> when you start picking away at these questions of who gets to be who gets to be human does humanity really do we really think that humanity is a kind of universal category because if you look at the history of racism and eugenics which emerges emerges directly out of fields like biology and mm-hmm. phrenology and all of the rationalist uh modes of knowledge that the univ- that the university that the museum is built upon you see that that is never really the case it's never really the case there's always there is always this rationalist positivist ma- way of thought has always sought to find ways of drawing the boundary of who is included in that distinct category of human to exclude who, however many people it can and like the cool thing about monsters and i think a reason why so many people find monsters so uh, they're kind of so drawn to monster movies is because people resonate with that idea of like if you have been in some way made to feel like you don't really count as a full person you know uh the 90s were a great time for for uh super gay vampires uh <laughs> shout out to it's shout out to interview with a vampire which is a which is a great movie and was kind of beloved by people precisely because it was about what would it t- it's it's being a monster is maybe not the worst thing in the world you can be maybe what would be worse would be being one of those humans who decides who the monsters are mm-hmm. and i mean like like this is this is just self-evident in the movie like the kathoga just wants to eat more of these magic leaves that make it feel normal like that's it you know that's all the kathoga for we we, we never see the kathoga's internality of course in the movie we never hear it speak or see some text from it in, in that way, it mirrors Dracula entirely, right? You read Dracula, we never hear Dracula speak, right? There's a, there's a great paper on this called Can the Vampire Speak by, um, oh, I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> Phenomenal paper, though, because you go through that whole book and you hear people reporting back to you Dracula's speech. And the people who are reporting back to you the speech of Dracula are his exterminators, mm-hmm. right? Are the, are the people who are attempting to genocide the vampire out of the story and to use the vampire to extract wealth, Right. You know, like they're buying Dracula's ancestral castle so he can go have a condo in England somewhere. And <laughs> moving to a box room in zone two in London for <laughs> sixteen thousand pounds a month. <laughs> and and we we get the same thing with Kathoga though. We like we we lack access to the internality of the monster, but from what we can see from the outside, like there are a lot of really easy... If they wouldn't have burned all those leaves in the beginning, Kathoga would have just been chill with its leaves. We could have grown more of this fungus, right? Mm-hmm. The the status of this thing as violence... Like, this reminds me of... Um, 
I think this might be a Howard Zinn quote. I might be misremembering who this is from, but like the, the, the violence of the oppressed might not always be justified, but if you don't listen to it, you'll never know what justice is, mm -hmm. right? What Kathoga does in this movie isn't necessarily justified, right? Like running around and eating people's hypothalamus glands. Hashtag problematic. In <laughs> um, shocking news, we do not necessarily always endorse decapitation and... Uh, munching on people's glands just you know it, it's 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 a questionable it's a gray area it's a gray area that's all we're saying <laughs> well this is the university of chicago and i'm assuming somewhere in the building they're extracting adrenochrome right now <laughs> but i think i think like this th th this is important though for the discussion of kathoga and what the kathoga is right like this this is that kind of an embodiment of this kind of oppressed violence right if we look at the kathoga from the perspective of this kind of chaotic emergence of the only communicatory technology that this indigenous tribe has to speak back to the system that is currently extracting its entire essence and identity. The, the, the Kathoga is one violent eruption of all of that tension, right? And so like when we approach Kathoga, like I think to approach the monstrous and the horror and Gothic more generally, you need to kind of approach the monster on the terms of its existence and not the monster as a set of actions over time because like Dr Dracula's turning people into vampires and killing people like the monsters love killing people and eating them that usually not cannibalism isn't too defensible most of the time but the actions of the Kathoga speak to deeper problems that need deeper solutions right um yeah absolutely absolutely do you want to do you want to um, start wrapping up? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the last my, my last my last topic, my last point uh, is is that like so, so as I was talking about in the pricey, movies are a technology of human memory. They're a way that we can collectively remember things without storing that memory necessarily in our minds. Mm -hmm. Right? In the same way this is the same way as oral traditions, as literature, right? The whole point of these projects is to find way find ways to store thoughts and memories that can live beyond the people that make them, can spread in different ways, right? And in movies, so movies get, get, get the term movies because they move, right? Ah, little film fact. There you go. Put that in your top 10 film facts you learned today. Um, but like movies are also moving and they're moving in kind of this Tarkovsky sense of they can like harrow the soul, you know, help us turn to good. Like movies are powerful in that way. But they're also technologically moving, right? Like movies are never still in a single context, right? We can look, we could look at the relic and try and ossify it and lock it in to the late 90s. And we can try and look at this, this, this movie in the context of like, what is the beginning of the end for museums not being just Six Flags for Nerds, right? We, we can look at this in very 90s contexts, or we can see it as something that for, still goes on and continues. Uh, a few years ago, they released a new Kathoga figurine. So you can buy a really high-end Kathoga if you want one for some reason. Um, so the, these things aren't dead and these things aren't silenced. You know, we're here talking about this now, having what I hope is an interesting conversation about the relic and about Kathoga. And I think this just, <laughs> this just highlights that like, Every, every time you create, the art is inherently Frankensteinian, right? You make a piece of art and now it, it's no longer under your control and it lives outside of you. You have no control of if someone, you, you release a song, somebody remixes it and they become famous and they sue you into the ground and you never get your money back, right? Like that's one possible reality, right? And the same thing is true about movies, right? The people who made the relic 
probably never anticipated that in, in the heart of neoliberal decay, we would be like using it to advocate <laughs> some manifestation of communism. I mean, I think this is like, that's the question, right? What, what, what is going to, what's going to happen? What remains possible at the end of the relic? Uh, in a way, it's kind of, a, I think if you think about it, the way that we've been talking about it, it's quite a bleak film. It ends with uh, demolishing half of the internal structure of the Fields Museum. It ends with uh, the, 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 the great institutions of Chicago presented in this film seem to be billionaire philanthropy, which is uh, chaotic and completely self-involved, and a political system that sees only value in policing. Uh, which seems kind of depressingly accurate to the current state <laughs> of the Chicago that I have been lucky enough to visit for the very first time. Yeah, that's and there's there's some like it's always like I like to end the episodes think about all the things that we just you know because each episode is an hour long and you can't fit every single human word into an hour. Like like there are things in this movie that that I, I like still have, have so much that's worth thinking about like. Uh, uh, l l Lieutenant Detective Pasta Pazul, and <laughs> <laughs> the, the anti-Italian. Uh, oh my God! Anyway, so uh, our, our our detective here, like, there, there's such a good conversation about the the politics of being a, a Italian American, Irish American, being white, and being a cop in Chicago. Like, like that construction of whiteness defines a huge chunk of this city's politics. Right, right. That status of like a, a working class Irish or Italian American cop is is just iconic in terms of the whole system of the American mythology of whiteness, and and to have that be counterposed as an as a superstitious alternative to like the last harrowed stand of a tribe that is being slowly picked apart by glo like museums across the globe. Mm -hmm. The, the, this movie is just rife with conversation. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, we, we we haven't been able to kind of cover everything, uh, but hopefully we've given you a kind of uh, a kind of taste of some of the interesting things about this film. Um, I, I guess it's kind of left for me to say thank you so much to all of you for coming. Thank you for everyone for sticking around for all of our talks. We have a stack of merch at the back, which we would love to uh, not, I would love to not have to carry around anymore. Uh, <laughs> please do uphold the thought of revolutionary leader, Comrade Stripe, uh, who was right uh, in all of what <laughs> they did. Um, we also have the posters, uh, which are incredible, designed by Paul. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, yeah, finally, and I think most importantly, um, thank you so, so much uh, to uh, Laura Colinari, who has put together this entire event, who has uh, kept us all uh, uh, fed and <laughs> dangerously caffeinated, uh, who has shown us around the, the uh, blasted heath that is the University of Chicago uh, campus. Uh, so please join me in a round of applause, please, for Laura. Thank you so much. Uh, please do stick around. We are heading to a bar. We're going to have some drinks. If you would like to have something other than Malort, which I can still taste. And it is 
It is revolting. Um, please do stick around. Please do uh, grab some merch if you can. We have only a few bits and pieces left, but thank you again so much for coming to the very first Horror Vanguard Live. <laughs> Let's go get a drink, everybody. <laughs> oh, the fun we had. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.